Welcome aboard! We will be your guides during this magical journey into the movies. It's the perfect job for us because we love the movies. It's showtime! Ready when you are, CB! Action! Welcome to Monorail Radio, episode number 101. I'm Sean. And I'm Jackie. Back after an unexpected break, thanks to Isaias <laughs> and PSE&G. If you are a Northeast customer, you guys are... Some of you, unfortunately, are still facing the pain that we faced, and we only had it for three days. Well, loss of power, coupling with life happened this week. When yeah, it rains, it yeah. pours. But hey, we're back, and, and we're just excited to finally be here talking about 1950s Treasure Island. Movie just celebrated its 70th anniversary. Of course, it is a live-action adaptation of the Robert Louis Stevenson classic novel. Some say it is the best adaptation of the film, and we're going to kind of dive into that over the next couple of weeks. I'll just leave that there. Um, one of the really rare Disney movies that has a 100% rating on Rotten Tomatoes. So going into this, I was really excited to watch it. Yeah, and I'm sorry, well, not sorry, actually, but Disney did not do nearly enough to celebrate this anniversary. I mean, right. 70 is pretty big. Maybe they will do something bigger for 75, but the Walt Disney Archives did like one post on Instagram, and that was it. Granted, with a film like this, it's very hard to track down props and the cast because it is so old. Yeah. We'll leave that up to our friend Dan Lanigan. But um, I feel like they just should have done so much more. And it was just kind of like, wah, wah. Yeah, I feel like they did next to nothing for it. Yeah, it was kind of disappointing, especially when we've just sung the praises of the later Pirates film franchise and you know, how involved they are with that. Yeah, and they're usually all over stuff like this. Anniversaries in general, they're right, usually right. all over. But especially because this was Disney's first live-action theatrical release. It's a big I, deal. Yeah, it's a huge deal. Especially the circumstances surrounding it. The reason that Walt decided to do live-action, I mean, I'm sure that it was something that he always wanted to pursue. But um, in the post-war era... Um, he had a lot of money tied up overseas and he was not allowed to collect on anything for his animated films. Right. So kind of by default, you had to make a movie over there. And this is the one that he decided to pick. And, and I think that's right up his alley because we talked um, about movies we wanted to show Walt. Uh, on episode 100 with our friends at Detour to Neverland, Brendan and Catherine. And if you haven't listened to that yet, you can go ahead and catch up on that after this episode. And Pirates of the Caribbean was one of those movies that was brought up. So you could tell that swashbuckling adventure film was something that Walt would have loved. Evidently, he did. So it's not a surprise that he did this. And he was somebody that was not afraid to tackle classic literature. You saw it in his fairy tales later with Mary Poppins. So it's not a surprise, really, that this was the first thing that he went for. Right. Well, that also goes back to Disney not making a big enough deal out of this because pirates were such a common thread for Walt. It's not just the adventure story, but that was one of the first rides that he constructed when, albeit it wasn't, you know, the boat ride, it was supposed right. to be the walkthrough museum when he conceptualized Pirates of the Caribbean. But that's always just been such a thing for him. And I think part of the reason why um, the version of the Treasure Island book that we have uh, has an introduction about Robert Louis Stevenson's life. And I found so many parallels between the author and Walt. And I can see why he was attracted to doing a story like this. Um, Robert Louis Stevenson had what was believed to be tuberculosis when he was a child, and it just left him ill his entire life. And his escapism was writing. Um, so during one of his bouts of sickness, he started writing Treasure Island, and he did a chapter a day. Wow. So to me... You know, the escapism obviously screams Walt to begin with, but that work ethic and gunning this story out, it, it definitely reminded me of 
Walt Disney. Yeah, and if you think about Walt Disney, other than the work ethic, talking about the tuberculosis and, and his condition, Walt Disney, we all know that he suffered that polo accident and he had a lot of vices to deal with that pain and a lot of people think that the workaholic that he was was sort of a diversion from the physical pain that he was in as well. Right. So you can see where there is a parallel. But the question is, how does the film parallel the novel? We open on the west coast of England in 1765. Jim Hawkins runs the Admiral Benbow, um, his family's inn. Captain William Bones is living in hiding at the inn and is visited by Blind Pew, a pirate who hands him the black spot. Jones, or excuse me, Bones gives Jim a treasure map that he knows that his former crewmates are after before dropping dead. I mean, he literally drops dead. Jim shows the map to Squire uh, Trelawney and Dr. Livesley, and they realize that the map once belonged to the pirate Captain Flint and will lead them to his buried treasure. They hire Captain Smollett and are preparing to set sail on the Hispaniola when they meet a cook by the name of Long John Silver, who says to have served in the Navy and can get a crew together for them. He also takes a liking to young Jim. Silver and his men board the Hispaniola, and they all set off for Treasure Island. Soon after, Silver uses Jim to get him a bottle of rum, which he uses to get the first mate, Mr. Arrow, drunk, which leads to Arrow's death upon falling overboard, or so they say. Jim soon overhears Silver and his men, who are revealed to have served under Captain Flint, uh, and they're planning to stage a mutiny. Jim tells this to Smollett, who instructs Jim to sort of act undercover and learn more and pretend that he is still friends with Silver. After arriving at Treasure Island, Silver, Jim, and a few of his men set off on a rowboat, while George Merry, who is one of Silver's men, um, they stage the mutiny, him and, and the rest of the men that remained on the boat, and they take over the Hispaniola. Jim escapes Silver and meets Ben Gunn, a fellow pirate under Flint who was marooned on the island five years prior. He shows Jim the island's stockade as well as a boat that he had built presumably for his own escape. Smollett and the others head to the stockade while Silver heads back to the Hispaniola to arm his crew with the muskets that have been locked on board. Silver then returns to the island. There's a lot of back and forth going on here. He then returns to the island and attempts to parlay with Smollett because he knows that he doesn't have enough men to really pull this off. But after being rejected, he and his men attack the stockade, nearly killing Smollett. And they do take out a couple of Smollett's men as well. Fearing the pirates will move the ship within firing range of the stockade, Jim takes Gunn's boat and cuts the ship's anchor away. After climbing on the boat, he is found by Israel Hands, another one of Silver's men, who throws a knife into Jim's arm, causing Jim to accidentally fire his pistol, killing Hands. Jim then runs the ship aground and cuts down the Jolly Roger that the pirates had flown and replaces it with the Union Jack. Jim stumbles back to the stockade to be treated by Dr. Livesley, but instead finds Silver and faints. Silver finds the treasure map on Jim's person, and he pockets it. Now, this is important because Mary wants Jim killed, but Silver says he intends to bargain Jim's treatment with the doctor in exchange for the map because his men don't know that he has the map on him. Fearing Silver has gone soft, his men present him with the black spot, which he refuses to accept, and he heads off to negotiate, quote-unquote, with Livesley, who treats Jim's wounds. Believing that he bartered Jim for the map, his men take back the black spot and set off to find the treasure. But meanwhile, what they don't know is while Livesley was treating Jim, Silver had negotiated his safety with Livesley in exchange for a failed fair trial upon return to England. When they arrive to the burial site of the treasure, they see that the treasure is no longer there. It's already been taken, and they lose their temper with Silver, who shoots them dead with the help of Livesley and the others that were in hiding. We learn that Gunn 
has the treasure. He has taken it back to his cave where he has been living for the last five years, and they pack it up and head back to the Hispaniola with it, and they take Gun as well. They're going to rescue him. Silver is on one rowboat with some of the treasure. Some of the treasure is on another rowboat with a few of the men, and he double-crosses them one more time and sort of takes Jim as a hostage. Jim then runs him aground, but seeing that Silver is not going to escape, he has a change of heart, and he helps push Silver away, and Silver sets off on the rowboat with only the treasure and his parrot, Captain Flint, and he makes off with nearly half of the treasure for himself. So, there are a lot of similarities between this and the novel. I go so far as to say that in terms of book adaptations that I have seen play to screen, for me, in, in terms of top five closest to the book, I'd say this is on my list. I don't know what, how you feel about that. I would definitely agree, especially because the way that this book is written, it reads like a screenplay. Yeah, it does. It's, it's very good. dialogue heavy. Yes. Yeah. I remember when I read that the first time, it felt like I was reading a, a script. Yeah. And it, it just the, the flow of it and the energy, um, it, you know, it's no wonder that it was adapted. And it has been many times. I mean, I think there was another version of it done in the 30s, not by Disney. Uh, it was much earlier on. But um, and then they redid it again in the 70s. And then they, it's been re remade many times. I think that you can even argue in certain ways Pirates of the Caribbean is sort of an adaptation. And I keep going back and forth um, because part of me wishes that we had reviewed this prior to our month-long discussion of the original trilogy of Pirates. But at the same time, I feel like if we had done that, Pirates would almost feel derivative. Um, but there's a lot of groundwork being laid here for what we know. Yeah, I think that there are... I mean, th there are lines from the book that then end up in the movie that are almost completely pulled into Pirates of the Caribbean when they talk about silent as the grave. And the whole we talked about the obsession with the apples uh, that Barbosa had. So much of that comes from this story, the novel, and, and then, you know, when it was put to screen, at least in this version. Well, I think what Pirates of the Caribbean did, they pulled a lot of those piratey phrases and delivered on them, like keep to the code. And, you know, later, three movies later, they actually made the code when they brought in Keith Richards to play Cap and Teague. The pieces of eight. And, exactly. So-and-so says you, so-and-so says I. There's a lot of that going on here, but I don't think that Pirates of the Caribbean necessarily copied this. I think what it also comes down to was an issue that Stevenson had when he wrote this. And it was that there was so much pirate folklore. And when he was going chapter by chapter, he was pulling from different stories and he actually had to get the rights to these stories to publish the book because he initially published them in a magazine so there wasn't so much of a copyright issue but once it became the novel he had to fight to get the rights for these things so I kind of feel like because I certainly don't want to accuse Pirates of the Caribbean of copying Treasure Island but I think that's a problem that any adaptation of these stories is going to run into is that there's just so many similarities and the, and the pirate lore was passed around so much. That's why you do have so much overlapping. I think it's the same way. Anytime you see a movie with dinosaurs in it, you just assume it's Jurassic park. I think when you have something yes. that is so revolutionary and it's really the first of its kind, almost everything after that sort of seems derivative which is sort of unfair in many ways. That's a great example. But yeah, I mean, that's kind of what happens when you are the first of the kind. Mean, I mean, that's why you do something like this, right? Because there are so many stories because it is so popular and you're pulling them all together and creating a full beginning, middle and end. I think anybody, whether it's pirates or dinosaurs, is going to run into that problem. Right. It's like if you watch a buddy cop film now, like a younger audience might say, oh, that's like Rush Hour. Oh, that's like Bad Boys. An older audience could say, 
oh, that's Starsky and Hutch, or it's Lethal Weapon. You know, there there is a certain lineage that people follow, and I think that, for all intents and purposes, the pirate films in general all sort of, they tend to follow this, because as I said, it was so revolutionary, it was a trendsetter. But to bounce off of what you said, because so much was folklore, you don't know how much was real, you don't know how much was fake. I mean, even down to, like, the sea shanties... Yo-ho-ho and a bottle of rum was something that Stevenson wrote. That was his. And A Pirate's Life for Me was something that Existencio wrote. But people think that these songs were in, you know, the 15th, you know, the 15th century, 16th century, and that these really did exist and they were passed down. And the fact was they just weren't. So I think that's a good jumping off point. I do want to call to attention, though. Um, and we're going to talk about the actors in a few minutes here once we get through the plot. But I would, I, I would be missing a big opportunity to point out here that you have American Bobby Driscoll playing American Jim Hawkins in England in 1767. I do have to call that out right away because the first two things that you see are... West Coast, England, 1767, and then Black Dog with Jim Hawkins. I'm glad you bring this up because it is one of my biggest gripes with this film. And it grieves me to say because this was in Walt's hands. He touched every aspect of this. And I don't want to be critical of his work, but it's a huge miss. I understand that you do have actors that you like to work with because we saw Walt do it a lot. I mean, obviously we know Haley Mills, Julie Andrews. Annette Funicello. Annette Funicello. And Bobby Driscoll, I actually never realized was a big one because I knew him from So Dear to My Heart. That was like my Bobby Driscoll movie. Right. Never realized that he was also Song of the South also in this, and then later on, the voice of Peter Pan, when his voice dropped a little bit. Right, so he's a huge part of Disney lore. However... He's not English. He's not English, and it would have better served the film if they really wanted to cast him to have him try to do the English accent. And it's not just him, though. Uh, I believe uh, Squire Trelawney, well, that was just kind of muddled throughout the whole thing. I couldn't tell if he was trying to sound British at certain points, if he was British and just playing it down, if he was drunk, I really don't know. (laughs) Well, he he became a man of the sea, kind of a pirate, so I guess it's okay if he's drinking. I'm not talking about the story, I'm talking about the actor. I really don't know what was going on. Talking about a place where you drink, the Admiral Benbow. To me, it seemed a little small. I, I, okay, now I don't want to listen. I'm not going to shred this movie apart the whole time. I'm not going to be one of those people. But I, when they talk about it in the book, they talk about the inn. There are people living there. It seems like not a hotel because there were no commercial hotels, but sort of a bed and breakfast. You'd have multiple people staying there. This seemed like a very small stone house that had a very small bar and a little parlor. And in the book, I believe the treasure chest was stowed away in an attic. Here it's stowed in like a cubby underneath the stairs. Correct. So I feel like they really downplayed the size. Now, they may have done that for budgetary reasons. They may have tried to downplay the set and build it cheaper, but I do think that was a miss as well. There's a couple of things here. Um, to me, it felt like right out of bed knobs and broomsticks, which yes. does come much later. Uh, so that might be something that bed knobs ripped off. I don't know. In the book, it also felt like the inn was much closer to town. Yes. And it seemed like Jim was growing up with like this whole cast of characters in and out. So that was something that I really was missing here. Um, because I feel like the book just paints it so much richer and more interesting. And I mean, that could be argued for any book. Most people say that the book is always better than the movie, but I just feel like for him as a character too, uh, 
you missed out on a little bit of the development because he wasn't interacting with as many people. And I also found that interesting because the way that they built the set here, uh, it allows the scenes to move sort of like a stage play. There's not a lot of editing. There's not a lot of insert shots. It's just mostly the wides of Jim moving in and out whenever there's either a visitor at the door or when... Um, when Bones comes down the stairs. Exactly. Um, so being that it was constructed in that way, um, it's like you said, you do wonder if it was because of the budget to keep it small, but also because they wanted to shoot the scenes a little bit long, but I also feel like if you're going for that, make it make it kind of like noises off. Give me all that in and out. Right. It's almost like it kind of has that feel of James and the Giant Peach or even Pete's Dragon, where you kind of have that house on the top of the hill overlooking the ocean yes. in the film, where you're right, it seems like it's more downtown, centrally located, where you have this cast of characters in and out, those who don't even necessarily live at the inn, but go to frequent the inn and go drink there. And here it's very rural and completely removed. I wanted it to be more like um, a Sleepy Hollow, almost. Okay, yeah. Where... You know, if you have somebody visiting from out of town, they'll stay in the, you know, I don't know if it was supposed to be in, in and I'm also talking about the Burton Sleepy Hollow, not, uh, not the animation. Yeah, of course. But you do kind of get the impression that they'll host visitors and the town is just kind of on top of each other. So yes. I felt like that was definitely missing. Um Really, the biggest deviation from the book is that, um, well, there's there's two here. Uh, they eliminate Jim's father. Right. Who, in the book, that's that's a big miss because we, spoiler alert, learn that he passes away. You see the whole thing play out. You see how it affects Jim. Uh, and it also sets up Jim's starting to come of age and make decisions for himself because his father didn't want him associating with pirates. And... In the book, it's also more explicit that Bones was a pirate. You learn that yeah. really early on. And here, uh, I actually like that they did that. They do mask it. They make him seem more like a, a seasoned sailor. And you know he's had a couple of adventures, but I like that they left that air of mystery in. Right, and it, it's also very different because in the book that really serves as a motivator for Jim to have to go find the treasure because they've fallen on hard times and he and his mother can't keep this in up without the father. They're going to financially fail. So that serves as a huge motivator for him to get on. Other than the fact that he's always dreamed of being on the sea and he daydreams of being on the sea. And they eliminate you actually seeing Bones move in and start interacting with with Jim and, and how he slowly starts to slip into senility the sicker he gets. They trim a lot of backstory out of here to speed up the process and get the adventure going, but I don't think they do it to the detriment of the story. I actually think that Jim still seems motivated to end up on the ship because in, in this it plays out more like he's seeking adventure than anything else. For this adaptation, I think that it works. I disagree. That was actually going to be my other point. This That's the second biggest thing that I feel is missing, other than the father, the relationship that he develops with Bones. And like I, I do get why they're pushing the story forward and they're speeding things up, but I feel like it is kind of a hit to the character, seeing how he's not as conflicted over the developing relationship with bones and his father telling him no. Once he starts to figure out that he was a pirate and once he learns who he's associating with, um, I feel like you're missing that internal conflict. Right. They also cut out the mother entirely. We never see her. They're made mention of once or she is, I should say. At least they do mention her, though. Right, and she's just in town, which doesn't really happen in the book because it's always her and Jim running the inn. But she's completely eliminated here, as is the chase between 
her and Jim trying to escape Pew and Black Dog because they have come to retrieve the treasure map from Bones, who has since died, and they chase after uh, Jim and his mother. That entire storyline is cut out completely. And you really only see Black Dog twice, and he doesn't serve a huge role in the film. Not that he serves a tremendous role in the book either, but he's very much trimmed down in the movie. Right. Um, Yeah, I think eliminating that chase you're again losing character losing Jim's character because you know he's got to help his mom get out and he really does have to step up and and be the man of the house so i definitely think the story lacks from trimming down the mother as well as trimming down black dog and pew to circle back to what you said before because where bones is sort of shrouded in mystery when these two come in you know they're pirates. This is where you start to see the line really get blurred, but make no mistake, these are actually pirates and you really learn who you're dealing with as far as bones. Um, To hit on Pew specifically, um, you know, he still serves his purpose. He delivers the black spot, even though they kind of rush through that. Um, But I want to circle back to something that I said when we reviewed Pirates when they hand Captain Jack the black spot. Um, I had said that instead of doing the CGI, I really wish that they actually handed something physical over. And I think they could have done something really cool passed between Bootstrap Bill and Captain Jack where it leaves the mark on his hand. And I I felt like it was kind of wimpy doing it as CGI. Nothing is more wimpy than passing off this piece of paper. Like to me, you hear about the dark spot and it's, it's supposed to be so foreboding and it definitely means bad news. But to see this circle drawn on a piece of paper, it was just lame. I mean, I don't know enough about it to know if that's how it actually happened, but you have now seen it both ways, and both ways you are not satisfied. Exactly. If I had to choose between the two, uh, for this rare occasion, I will be Team CGI. And you will probably not hear Jackie say that very often. I want to circle back around to... You mentioned... uh, bones a few moments ago and we've been you know talking about some of the things that they've trimmed out to sort of expedite the story to get them to the high seas something that i like that they did here is that before he dies he asks for rum and jim says i promised dr livesley no more rum but he's begging give me give me the captain's rum blah 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 blah. he threatens to go get the doctor exactly so what this does is it it, it further expedites backstory. This isn't the first time that we've been through this with the captain. We've now introduced Livesley through dialogue. This is some more trimming that works here. And I, I think that it, it gives backstory without hurting what you are watching now or what you will see as the movie progresses forward. I like that they use this to develop a history. I agree because I actually did feel like that part of the book where he's sick actually drags on a little bit. It goes on for a long time, for a very long time, and that's completely cut out here. And then, I mean, for the most part, from here until the until just about the end of the movie, it is a really true interpretation of the novel. And for those reasons, the movie was very controversial when it came out because... They were not afraid of a body count. Right. They really were not. And that shocked a lot of people when it came time to see it on the screen. Because remember, Disney hasn't done a live action film before. They've done a lot. Everything they've done has been animated. I mean, there were some scary parts to Pinocchio. And Fantasia was very experimental. But when those, and and Bambi, but like when those were the really controversial Disney movies, you are literally watching people get shot in the head in this movie. You're watching them get stabbed. They're showing blood, and they're not afraid to show the blood. 
This was not shocking. a lot, but it was shocking nonetheless to actually see it play out. And having only seen this once as a child and revisiting it now nearly 30 years later, I had forgotten about all of that. And I have to say, I'm I was surprised, but I was pleasantly surprised to see how true to the book they really stuck here. I agree, especially because I felt like when they cast off, they do a montage of raising the anchor, hoisting the flags, the sails, et cetera, et cetera. And for me, it almost feels like that montage could be a musical. They have the score playing under it, obviously. But remember when we reviewed Pirates and I said I applaud them for not going the musical route? This is why. In a scene like this, you half expect them to be singing. It almost feels like Steppentine, the way that they're climbing things and, you know, I could see the working man song being sung here. Um, So it sort of, in that montage, lures you into that false sense of Disney security so that by the time they do go for the first kill, you are shocked to see blood on screen. Absolutely. I love the sets here. Um, I love the ship itself. I think it's absolutely beautifully done. I think the detail is incredible. And when they finally get to Treasure Island, similarly, it really does look like something where someone like a Ben Gunn would be marooned. I love the stockade. I really love the world that they put here. Like, honestly, you know, you read a book. We talked about the inn before and how it it sort of didn't live up to your standards in your mind of what the inn was. Mm-hmm. But the Hispaniola and Treasure Island itself, the actual island, and even Gun's cage, or uh, cave, I should say, that totally lives up in my mind to what I saw when we read the book. Which is really impressive coming off of the Pirates of the Caribbean reviews, knowing that they used an actual ship to play the Dauntless. They used the Lady Washington. Right. Uh, Then, you know, they built ships. They built the exterior of the ships on barges. So the fact that the Hispaniola still holds up all these years later, it, it proves how impressive it was for its time. Yeah, and I think that the most important thing here is the relationship between Jim and Silver. Because that relationship, they build it so much over the course of the book, and it has so many peaks and valleys in the book that I wondered if they were going to be able to translate that over to a screen where so much of the book is cut out. And I think they did an excellent job. We'll talk about the actors in a few moments here, But I think that you're not losing anything in their relationship. And I think that is the most impressive thing about this movie. Because these are very, very complex characters. I definitely agree with that. I mean, when they get to Treasure Island, you're really looking for that pirate adventure. But I think what makes the story book and movie is the relationship between Jim and Long John Silver throughout the back end of it. Right. Let's talk about the end of the movie here because this is another huge change in the book. When silver escapes them, because he comes up with this whole thing of, uh, yeah, you can give me a fair trial and whatever. He sneaks out basically in the middle of the night and he takes his share of the treasure, Mm -hmm. just his take in all fairness and Jim catches him as he's leaving, and he tells him, Jim, I've only taken my, my fair part of it. I've left the rest for you guys. I have to get home to my wife. He is married to a woman of African descent. None of this happens in the film. In the film, he, as I mentioned, he basically just takes about half the treasure, and he sets off on his own on his little rowboat that he pulls the sail up, just like you've seen Johnny Depp do. Um, I don't think it hurts the story, though. I think, I think what it does is... 
I think it hurts the complexity of Silver as a character. I think that it's one thing in literature, but I think when it plays out in a film, you want to see a pirate be a pirate, and I think you want it to be a lot of fun. So it works for the film without hurting the integrity of the character. But if you think about John Silver as uh, universally, whether that be on screen or in the book, I do think it waters him down. And I'm not even going to say a little bit. I think it waters him down a lot. That's not to say I don't like what they did here. For the film, it does work. I definitely agree with you. Um, in that example where he takes half the gold and also when he goes and raises the white flag to go get the doctor so that he can save Jim. I kind of feel like that was the early building blocks of you can be a pirate and a good man. And I love that about the character book and movie. Um, what I don't like, and I, I do love the book. Um, it, it is a classic in every sense of the word. And I will die on the hill of Treasure Island being a classic, but the wife was something that I never liked. And I think I had that same issue later on. And I mentioned it when we reviewed Pirates 3 was that I didn't need to see Captain Teague. I didn't need to see that familiar responsibility. And I feel like it's the same thing here. He's a pirate. He's not supposed to care about anything. And now he's like, I got to get home to my wife. That's like the least piratey thing I've ever heard of. Sure, but I'll let you have that. And that's why I think for a film version, it works. Um, let's talk about a couple of members of the cast here, starting with Bobby Driscoll. Jim is very young here, okay? I'm going to say Driscoll's 12, maybe 13 years old. I sort of always envisioned Jim as being more of like a preteen or an early teen, 15, 16 years old. And when he gets back with the treasure, his mother says, this can't be my Jim because the person standing in front of me is a man. The person that left was a child. And I think that that does one of two things. I think it shows that Jim has become that haggard, salty sort of pirate on his own, mm -hmm. but it's also showed that there's been a, a significant passage of time here, whereas this kind of seems like they were only gone for a couple of days. And I think Bobby Driscoll does a really good job. I like him as Jim Hawkins. Um, I, I don't love that he's an American uh, 10 years before, uh, or nine years before 1776, but... Um, I think he plays him well, but I, he is very young. And I, as good as he plays it, because I think he plays it mature. He doesn't play it like a pouting child. But seeing how young and how small and how frail he is, I don't know that I necessarily buy 100% into that version of Jim Hawkins. I agree with you. And I think not that it's a knock against the actor. He is just so expressive. His facial expressions go from zero to 100. There's no subtlety about it. He's either starry-eyed and happy or he's got the furrowed brow. He's just so expressive. And I think that adds to making him feel more childlike. Um, I thought maybe he was about nine or ten when he did this. And I, th in my mind, Jim Hawkins has always been more like 14, 15, because don't forget, back in these times, 16 was like full-grown adult. So maybe maybe 12 or 13 is more appropriate. But yeah, I feel like in the book, the way that it's written, he's doing a lot more hard labor than we see in the movie. And that's always why I got the impression that he was, you know, just a physically bigger boy. He's more, he comes off more like a dock hand in the book than he does in the movie. Exactly. Robert Newton as Long John Silver. As much as I love Johnny Depp, and he's great, I think that Newton is the standard for what pirates are in a film. He was one of the first to do it. 
He was certainly not the last to do it. And as much as I love Johnny Depp, and as great as he is as Jack Sparrow, and that entire franchise hinges on that character, why, which is why it's a mistake getting rid of him. I think that it is very hard to say that Robert Newton is not the greatest pirate ever put on screen. Yeah, because the first time that I saw this, I thought it was a little bit of a shtick almost, but it really is a very nuanced performance. What makes it so impressive to me is that, you know, when we reviewed Pirates, we really went into the actors and where they pulled from, and everybody knows that Johnny pulled from Keith Richards. Uh, but even Kevin McNally pulled from Quint from Jaws right. for Gibbs. Uh, and I think Barbosa, uh, Jeffrey Rush, might have pulled a little bit from Long John Silver. But that's what makes it impressive, right? I'm sitting here saying they pulled, they pulled, they pulled. Who did Robert Newton pull from? No one. No one. He originated this character he originated probably what everyone has in their mind a pirate to be the only thing that sort of takes away from the performance a little bit and i think this is because we've grown up on pirates and we are so spoiled is the wardrobe they didn't age the clothes they didn't dirty them up to me it looks a little i mean some of them are dirty but basically from the fight scenes, they got dirty. They didn't age them. Certainly not in the way that Penny Rose did for Pirates of the Caribbean. Um, so to me, that sometimes makes it feel the movie overall a little stage play-ish. But he is what grounds this movie for me. And what's really interesting is that he was called upon to play Long John Silver again outside of Disney. They did another movie with a different studio and they did a television show and he reprised the role. But you would never in a million years see that now. I mean, can you imagine if, well, actually, you know what? Your move, Hollywood. <laughs> yeah, really. If Disney's not going to revive Captain Jack Sparrow, what if they did another Pirates franchise where he's Captain Jack Sparrow, but they did it with a different studio. He's copywritten. I would imagine the character is copywritten. Whereas anybody could have... Actually, um, Treasure Island was almost 100 years old at the time that they made the movie. I think it was about 80 years old. I, forgive me, because I, I honestly don't know if it was in public domain or not. But I'm sure that as long as you acquired the rights to the title, you could also make a film. Um, whereas I think Disney explicitly owns Captain Jack Sparrow. However, I will disagree with you on the costumes. I think they're incredible. I think they're incredibly detailed. I think they're beautiful. Yes, I will give you the fact that they are not dirtied up the way that they are in... Pirates of the Caribbean, but the difference between those pirates and the pirates here is that it seems like after serving under Flint, these pirates have sort of gone into hiding waiting for their next adventure. Mm -hmm. And they're trying to convince Smollett and Jim and the whole lot of them that they served under the Queen's Navy. I mean, that's what Silver tells them. And that's guys. why they're stand-up guys. Yeah, yeah. He says that's how he lost his leg. If they come up with dirty shredded pirate clothes their cover is immediately blown so i sort of feel like rather than constantly pillaging the way that the crew of the black pearl had done in the first movie the way that jack sparrow had been doing in the first movie and, and going from adventure to adventure to adventure these pirates were more biding their time because i think ultimately their end game was to always get to Flint's treasure because they were just trying to get back what they believed was theirs the entire time. I will give you that because that is an excellent point. Um, I think my issue, though, is maybe not so much because you're right. It is detailed. And for that aspect, it looks great. But my issue is probably not so much with the pirate wardrobe as it is with going for period accuracy sure i understand that i feel like as far as making the clothes look worn th that's what it is it's the fabric 
it, it's just the fabric, plain and simple. I, and I'm realizing that as I'm talking about it now. It's that it looks like it was cut to make a costume. It doesn't look like you went and purchased the material and made your own clothes back in the day, and it should. And I wonder if some of that is now that a lot of these movies have, be, have been digitally restored. In its original run in theaters, and even on VHS and on television, you probably would not have noticed that. But I think now that everything's getting remastered and everything's getting cleaned up and everything's so much more brighter and vibrant, it stands out more now than it did at the time. And, and maybe if, if Disney knew then what they know now, you know, if Walt Disney was alive today and knew, they may have played it very differently. Right. Um, the other character that I think is worth mentioning here is just Ben Gunn, because in the book, he is so much more manic than he is in the movie. But I like that they dialed back on it. I think he's insane enough because he's been marooned here for five years. And that, too, plays out over many chapters in the book. I think if they would have done too much of that here, he would have come off as too cartoony. And I think it would have been too silly for what is otherwise a fairly serious movie. So I think they did a justice to making him just crazy enough. I think t anything else more than that, and it would have been too, too much comic relief. I agree with you on the comic relief point, but I disagree with uh, almost everything else that you said. I feel like in the book, he is supposed to be more of that burnout character, sort of like what Johnny tried to bring to Jack Sparrow with the rum-soaked pirate, and I've been doing this for so long, and I've been out in the heat, that he's kind of got a screw loose here. I feel like he's almost regressing back into a caveman. And I mean, part of that is the wardrobe, but I think part of it is the way that he's speaking. Um, and I, I get it. I mean, if you're alone in isolation for that long, like, yeah, you do forget how to be. I mean, hello, we've been in quarantine and I'm not sure yes. how I'm <laughs> going to go back to a job and an office and, and function around people anymore. Um, but I, you know, so in, in that regard, I get it that he's totally lost touch with reality, but I feel like they dumbed him down far too much. Okay. So let me just ask you now, what is your final synopsis of 1950s, Treasure Island. Uh, it's a pirate movie. Am I not going to like it? Come on. You got to give me more than that. Final synopsis. I think it is a brilliant adaptation of the book, even though it starts out a little clunky as far as the changes that they made. I think they did serve the story. I think that there are certain things that are never going to stand the test of time, like casting a couple of American actors to play these English roles, uh, certain things about the way that it was shot and the parts of it that feel like a stage play. And I don't just mean in the way that the sets were built. I'm also talking about in the way that it's shot. There are some times that it feels like the camera is just locked and pointing at the stage. And being that this is a film, this is where it really hurts me to say because it was Walt's first live action. But it is something that's surprising to me that for somebody who comes from an animation background, you have to plan everything down to the T. You're going to know where your wide shots are, where your medium shots are, where your close-ups are. And what was surprising to me is that now he's doing this in a live action medium, how few close-ups there were. There's a couple, but... I was very surprised to see that he, with film editing, he didn't really try to go for different angles and use this different kind of visual medium to really zone into the details of the story. Sure, like he didn't really get experimental with it at all. Not that it called to be experimental, but I'm just surprised that like if there's two people talking in a scene, he really didn't get a lot of the reaction shots. Like 
the camera just holds on one person delivering their lines and it misses that. Like, for example, if it was Pirates of the Caribbean, if Will says something, it's not locked on the absurd thing that Will is saying. It's locked on Johnny's reaction going, what is, what is this guy talking about? Uh, So I feel like that's something that obviously you're going to learn with time, but I'm, I'm just really surprised that Walt didn't want to employ that his first time out because it's, it's just so different. Yeah. I think, um, well, I think certain aspects of, of the movie, what you're talking about, for example, is sort of a product of its time. I think obviously we've spoken at nauseum. It was their first foray into live action. I mean, you're talking about a film that, was only, what, 30 years after the first talkies? I mean, even color pictures were fairly new at the time when you think about, you know, history of cinema as a whole. Um, You know, 1939, we have uh, The Wizard of Oz come out, and this is only 11 years later. So I think cinema at the time is very primitive, and when you have a primitive medium with somebody who hasn't done it this way before you kind of are going to fall into those sorts of traps. But in that aspect, in that aspect, I agree. That's where the film does feel a little bit dated, I think for a modern audience. Right. And I guess the other thing is I shouldn't feel bad about being critical because Walt did not direct this. He produced it, but that's what my argument is that I'm surprised that he didn't want to play with it a little bit more because now he can, he doesn't have to draw for the final product it doesn't have to be every single frame that's so precise because you can shoot a little bit more and you can edit it down and I feel like that was probably part of the learning process but for what it is for the first live action for the way that they told the story for the cast that they chose to tell it with I mean I think in almost every other regard, it absolutely holds up. Yeah, to touch on what I said before, all of the, all of all of the things that they did in the filmmaking process that, as I pointed out, is being primitive. It it never took away from me what my general feeling or my general reaction was to this film, and I go so far as to say that it pains me that I did not grow up with this movie. I watch it now as an adult. And I wish I had spent my life watching this movie because I think it's an absolutely great adaptation. I think that the movie, much like the book, caters to people of all ages. I find it to be a lot of fun. I I love the characters. I love the world that they created. I wish that we had more of that. And I will go so far as to say that I think it's better than most of the Pirates of the Caribbean films. Wow. I don't think it's better than The Curse of the Black Pearl, but I think it is better than every single one that came after that. I can see where you say that, yeah. I'm not going to agree with it because you know the pedestal that I hold my pirates on, and even though I did take some issue with the sequels, I don't know that I'm going to say that this is better than Pirates, but it's extremely impressive for the time period and considering again he came from an animation background and this was his first live action i mean we should all be so lucky that's right and we're interested in knowing what you have to say about 1950s treasure island you can let us know on twitter instagram and facebook at monoreal radio you can also email us monorealradio at gmail.com news of the week is coming up but first a quick break if you're thinking of taking a disney trip this year whether it's walt disney world in florida disneyland in california a disney cruise or olani in hawaii get in touch with me for a free quote i would love to help you plan a trip for you and your family or even if you've already booked reach out. I want to help get you the best deal possible. You can contact me on any of the Monoreal Radio social media outlets or shoot me an email at j.zolezzi, that's Z-O-L-E-Z-Z-I, at MagicalVacationPlanner.com. News this week, Tron 3 is back on. After sort of being in production hell for a long time, being canceled, being in limbo, it is back with Garth Davis set to direct it, which is sort of interesting because if you look at sort of his 
uh, diary of work, it's he's not the type of guy that you would think would do a Tron movie, but apparently he really appealed to the Disney executives, and uh, he's got Jared Leto on board to be in the film. So it's got a lot of people cautiously optimistic because Leto is great, but his Joker was so polarizing. I, for one, actually liked it for that interpretation. Um, Not my favorite Joker, but I didn't hate it the way so many people did. I think it worked for that interpretation of him. But he is a polarizing character. He's a polarizing actor as talented as he is. So I'm really intrigued to see how this plays out, but I, for one, am excited to finally get a third Tron film. Not a surprise that we finally got the third one because Hollywood is so fragile right now. So if they had any semblance of a script and and some production design ready to go, I'm sure this got greenlit very fast. I was surprised by the casting choice. Um, I think Jared Leto is insanely talented. I mean, he is an Oscar-winning actor, but when you think what he won his Oscar for, Dallas Buyers Club, uh, I'm surprised that Disney went with him. I mean, we've talked about this before. Johnny Depp was kind of controversial. Robert Downey was controversial. So I think Disney is keen to give actors a second chance, but Jared Leto's also got a mouth. So for that much you know he gets very political sometimes i was kind of surprised that they cast him and he's also an actor that i think very much dips his toe into the avant-garde yes and so it's interesting to see how he's going to play in this sort of sci-fi universe that is tron but that is not the most polarizing thing that (laughs) happened this week mulan is going to Disney Plus like so many of us thought that it would on September 4th for 29.99 wrong 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 move Disney I agree now the movie is getting a theatrical release in China though it's it seems like it's set to bomb there because apparently they don't like the movie poster. They don't like the poster. They say it looks dated. Um, they say it looks like community theater. I wouldn't know. I, I don't have an opinion one way or the other, but apparently it's off to a very rocky start. It's very off. It's, it's off to a very rocky restart. I will take that, though. I am glad their issue with it is that, you know, it's culturally appropriate. Well, yeah, um... But let's talk about this twenty nine ninety nine. I absolutely hate this move. And listen, I'm not one of these people that goes, I pay my $6 a month. That's not me. That's not me. I don't care about paying for video on demand. Here's the thing. I don't pay. Machete don't pay for <laughs> video on demand. I am a firm believer... In supporting your movie theaters. Yep. I'm a firm supporter of supporting your movie theater staff. Call me old-fashioned, but there is something special to me in my mid-30s about going to a movie theater, getting a nice hot buttery popcorn and a jumbo diet Coke, and sitting there and experiencing a film with a crowd. I cannot imagine... Watching Endgame, don't take this the wrong way, with you and the dog on the couch for the first time. There was nothing like seeing it on opening night with a sold-out theater. It was a playoff game atmosphere, and it made it so much more fun. And when I watch Endgame now, it just hypes me up because I, it, it's the nostalgia. It reminds me of seeing it with those people, with the other people that dedicated over 10 years of their life to the MCU and I hate, the f- I hate the notion that movie theaters may be a thing of the past because this is a tremendous mistake. It is an absolute mistake. If you start cutting movie theaters out and doing everything video on demand, first off, the return is never going to be there. You're going to see everything get scaled back. But it just hurts the movie-going experience. I really, truly believe in my heart of hearts that it hurts Hollywood. I'm not taking away from the fact 
that it is expensive for families to go to a movie. I've told this story before on the show, and I will tell it again very briefly of my father and I that went to go see Solo in the movie theater and stood behind the mom with her five kids and watched her drop $125 to take her kids to go see a movie in IMAX and then drop another $75 at the popcorn stand. I'm not saying movies have not gotten expensive. And if you have that family of four, a family of five, $29.99 is a value. I get that. Okay, and especially given this post COVID world where people are pinching the pennies, I'm not I'm not playing that down, but I do believe that this will have a negative effect on the movie going experience moving forward. And I think it's very important to support your local movie theaters. Love that. Uh, I have a lot of thoughts. So brace yourself. Go ahead. Yeah, because now we're going to hear from the industry. Um, I I think the price point is ridiculous. And I think a lot of people are missing that you're still going to get it as part of your Disney Plus subscription regardless. They're not gouging your eyes out for the sake of. It's just that if you want it first, you have to pay for it. I still think it's a bad move on Disney's part. I feel like... It almost comes off as, well, we gave you all this stuff for free, like Artemis Fowl and Lady and the Tramp, and now we're going to take it back. Uh, I also think that it sets a very scary precedent because Disney really has been leading the charge as far as streaming services go. And since they announced Disney+, Plus, we have seen so many other studios follow suit. One really big gripe that we've had recently and th- this is where I get very frustrated, is that we've always had CBS All Access. We got it because we are obsessed with Big Brother, but that's a different story for a different time. Uh, I would be lying if I said I didn't love having every episode of I Love Lucy ever at my disposal, but you can't watch Big Bang Theory on there anymore. Big Bang Theory was a CBS show. We loved it for all 11 seasons that we saw. And we have not seen the 12th yet because now it has been taken away to go to HBO Max. So you can start to see that there's now going to be a bidding war with all of these streaming platforms as far as having the big ticket items and wanting you to subscribe. And I do fear what's going to happen to the future of movie theaters, especially the independent ones, like you said, but the streaming battles are also a parallel for what is going on in the film industry. There's also talk in an effort to revive the theaters of studios now owning their own theaters, which is the worst idea that I've ever heard of. And here's why. It sounds great, right, in theory, that you could have a theater that just shows Disney movies and you could go and and pay your $12 or $15 or whatever and see the new Disney releases. The problem with it is that where are these theaters going? What happens, you know, now we're spoiled living in an area like New York that's very populated where, you know, presumably in the city you'd have a a uh, Disney theater, a Warner Brothers theater, uh, an NBC Universal theater, whatever. We're not in the city. We're out on Long Island. But we are at least close enough to the metro area. I mean, from where we're sitting in our studio, I can throw a rock in literally three different directions and hit a movie theater within 10 minutes of here. Right. So that's part of the problem is what happens if you now have to go into the city just to go see a movie? Or what happens to the really small towns where if you want to go see Ghostbusters 3, but you only have a Disney theater near you, what happens when you have to start driving an hour, two hours just to go see to the just to go see the movie you want to see? I, I think it's a terrible idea. And it's unfortunately one that's gaining a lot of traction is for the theaters to become studio owned because unfortunately the studios are the only ones who have the money to save them. So that's the trend is that they might not be collective anymore where you can go, you know, like the double features are going to be a thing of the past. Yep. 
matinees will be a thing of the past. Make no mistake about right. it. For everybody that complains, for and I just mentioned how expensive it is to go to an AMC or a Regal or a United Artist, don't think for a second if a studio owns a movie theater that they're not going to gouge your eye sockets out. Right. Be prepared for $25 minimum on a ticket because now you will have less areas of distribution. Their production costs are the same. exactly. But instead of showing it on 1,200 screens, now they're maybe only showing it on 300 screens. They're going to make their money back somehow, and it's going to be off of you. So in summary, shame on you, Disney. Do not charge $29.99 for Mulan. Thank you very much. We'll just wait for it. And I'll be honest with you. Like, at this point, I don't even care. Like, I didn't love Mulan. I said that in our review. And I was sort of cautiously optimistic with seeing the live action. At this point, it's become so exhausting that I don't even care about it anymore. I, I'm being honest with you. If they did this with Pirate 6 starring Johnny Depp, I don't know that I would pay $30 for it. Yeah. But, as always, interested in knowing what you guys have to say, you can let us know on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Monorail Radio. You can also email us, monorailradio at gmail.com. Thank you guys so much for joining us this and every week on Monorail Radio. Don't forget to subscribe to us on your podcast platform of choice. Of course, follow us on that social media, and we would absolutely love... If uh, we saw a couple of reviews from you guys on iTunes, we love hearing from you. We love interacting with you, um, and that's a great way to help the show out. Want to throw this out there to you? You know, we we've been talking a lot about pirate movies, or so it would seem, because we did almost an entire month dedicated to the first Pirates of the Caribbean trilogy, and now we're doing Treasure Island. But we want to talk about Treasure Island a little bit more because we mentioned before how many adaptations there are of this story. And we want to see how they differ from each other. So, coming up over the next couple of weeks, we are going to review and discuss Muppet Treasure Island, which I'm really excited about, as well as Treasure Planet. So, be prepared for those. We have those coming up again, like I said, over the course of the next couple of weeks. And I thank you guys again for joining us. For Jackie, I'm Sean. Have a magical week, everyone. On behalf of Monoreal Radio, we'd like to thank you for joining us. We'll see you at the movies, the stuff dreams are made of.